Hello and welcome to London Live. It's Tuesday, March 26th, 2019. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. He's uh, traveling with the London Knights today. He'll be back with you tomorrow. You can hear Mike tonight, however. Knights are in Windsor to face the Spitfires. Game three of their playoff series. Knights lead the series two games to none. You can hear the game on 980 CFPL starting at 6.30 with the pregame. Puck drop is at 7 o'clock. We've got a busy show for you today, so there's uh, not a moment to waste. We're going to talk rapid transit for most of the show, certainly for the first hour, a little bit in the second hour. Uh, we'll also talk about the uh, London Medical Network. That'll be at uh, City Council tonight. We'll talk about the ongoing troubles for the federal liberals on the SNC-Lavalin affair. And we'll talk about cybersecurity. After it was discovered that some Elections Canada websites uh, have uh, and personal pages of MPs don't have the basic encryption necessary to stop your information from being hacked as it's sent from point A to point B. It's not a scary interview, but something you should be aware of. Uh, to start, though, we'll begin with a little BRT and a little federal politics. Uh, Michael Van Holst is the councillor for uh, Ward 1. He, along with Phil Squire, Steve Hillier, and Paul Van uh, Meerbergen, voted against all five components of BRT last night. He is also the uh, Conservative nominee for London Fanshawe in the upcoming federal election. He joins us in studio. Uh, Michael, I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Happy to be here. Maybe a little sleepy after a long meeting last night. It was a long one. Seven and a half hours is uh, that's uh, that's a full work day, and uh, that was just one meeting. Uh, I guess with with three fifths of BRT moving forward, we still have a full vote at council tonight to confirm this. So it's not final until it's final. Is BRT BRT without all the five components, or like how do we how do we classify this going forward if it's not all five components? Well, a BRT system is generally considered to have dedicated lanes uh, and it will have higher frequency buses. So what we've got is a smaller version of a BRT. So you, you still consider this to be BRT even though it's not the five components of it all? Yes. Are you pleased with the decisions made by council? Obviously, you were there, there were some councillors who all voted in favor of all five components, some who voted in favor or against all five components, some who voted for, and then there were kind of a mix in two. Are, are you happy with the outcome, or would you have preferred that obviously maybe none of those five components went forward? The, the outcome's better than it could have been, so maybe that's my comment. Uh, I... I voted against them because my goal was to try to achieve a little more flexibility. So I brought forth a motion that would try to incorporate um, combinations of HOV lanes, high occupancy vehicle lanes, uh, and and other innovations like that. So that was a little less impactful on uh, on the traffic and gave us a little more forward compatibility because I see a different future for London than than the BRT. Have you heard anything from any of your constituents? It hasn't been 24 hours, but in in the morning since the vote, I mean, it seems like everyone in London has an opinion on on the decisions. Have have anyone have, have your constituents uh, said, yeah, yeah, we like the votes, or no, we wish you voted a different way? Uh, I did get a call, and somebody was lobbying for the west leg, and wondering if they agreed to make it be uh, an HOV lane. Would I support that? So, I said I would. Are you? Are but you? But that yes. You would support the West Leg. Uh, certainly, if it was uh, an HOV lane. Oh, okay. Right. So, oh, okay. And that was that was the question. Would you do that? And I I think that's something I'd be okay with. Uh, are you as far as the votes tonight? Do you think anything's going to change, or what we saw yesterday is going to be rubber stamp today, or? 
I doubt there'll be much change uh, tonight. Even in the meeting at the very beginning, people put out their 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 individual perspectives, and it was decided that people probably won't change their minds. So we'll try to see where we can get. Might have been a little bit of uh, of of compromise, but there there wasn't there wasn't much room for it, and not really looking into anything. Uh, that was particularly creative. So we ended up with our, our compromise was half a BRT plan, essentially. You were acting, obviously, in your capacity as uh, counselor for Ward uh, 1 last night. Uh, come October, when we have the federal election, you will be the uh, nominee for the Conservatives in London Fanshawe. Uh, what made you want to go for the nominee for the nomination and ultimately get it uh, for to go at federal politics so, so soon after being elected uh, municipally for a second term? Well, I guess the first thing I was asked to do it, and then when I thought about it, realized there's so many things in London that we depend on from upper levels of government, uh, it would be a great opportunity to try and, and get those things. So I know that I fight pretty hard for my ward, and you would have seen that last night. Uh, so I'm willing to get out there and try to get the things we need for London. And the nice thing about having been a city councillor for four and a half years is I know what we need. And I guess it's the same with being involved in the, the many community and business associations I am too. I know what they need, so I, I've got a good sense of what what will help us here. Did you ever think about resigning as city council to devote all your attention to being the nominee for the Conservatives this fall? Um, no, I... I don't think so. There's, I'm still very passionate about London, and there's a lot of uh, important things coming up that I want to be very much involved in. The, the timing isn't ideal. I would have preferred it would be later uh, in the term, but there's nothing I can do about that. Well, I mean, but you, you understand why people would be upset, uh, or if some people are an, uh, annoyed when someone's reelected and then goes for higher office less than six months later? Oh, perhaps. So... There's there would be a need if I'm uh, elected to as an MP to to replace me, um, perhaps. So there's the option of appointing someone or uh, having a by-election, or there has also been the talk of moving towards uh, a full-time counselor council with fewer wards. So that that's something that could be wrapped wrapped into that. But that wouldn't be. Um... Uh, like changing the size of council is a whole different, whole different beast in terms of making the decision is to go for the nominate nomination, though. Yes, yes. So that's uh, that would be something that would deal with li- later in the term, but will likely come up uh, in city council. What, so, what sort of issues uh, are, are you attracted to uh, on the, on the federal level? I mean, there's, I mean, SNC Lavalin's obviously a big thing that's uh, going to be on the vi- minds of many in terms of the government's handling on that. A uh, carbon uh, tax that the liberals are bringing in is going to be a big one. Do you, do you have a? Uh, do, do do you support a carbon tax or are you, or are you against such a carbon tax? What, what are your thoughts on that? I'm I'm not su- supportive of a carbon tax. So I'm as a chemical engineer, I look at at carbon as as a chemistry problem and concentrations, and trying to come up with uh, economic ways to do it in terms of a, a carbon tax or the carbon credits, creating a whole new currency to try and uh, manipulate people's behavior, uh, I don't think is a great solution because it's not direct. Let's, let's, let's try and figure out exactly what we need to do, which 
might be just sequestering carbon, or realizing that what we want to do is provide people options that that don't require them to uh, to burn as much fossil fuels, and those are possible. Is your issue with uh, like the, the the mode of dealing with, it or like the the idea of climate change itself? The well, I I would. I would say those modes of dealing with it are, are indirect, right? What we're trying to do is somehow, um, by charging more for, say, gasoline, uh, affect your 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 driving habits. But I, I know what I do in the face of gas prices that go up and down. I just I just pay whatever it is and drive where I have to because that's that's what my job requires of me. I need to be here and there. Um, Sometimes at a moment's notice, and when things come up. So, do you I, believe uh, climate change is a is an, an issue though, or a problem? Well, certainly the climate's changing. I think there's, um, I think it's an exaggerated concern. I know many people are afraid of that, and uh, people are are manipulated by fear. So, if you tell me what you're afraid of, I'll tell you how you're being coerced. And uh, so, this is one of one of those things where uh, we're the the downsides are are I think being exaggerated and unlikely, and they're probably farther off. For instance, uh, some of the calculations talk about what would happen if we doubled the concentration of carbon in the in the atmosphere. Well, at, at the rate we're going, that would take two hundred years. We don't have two hundred years of fossil fuels left, so we'll come up with something. So, looking for a technical solution is I think much better than than looking for an economic solution. So that's what I would like to see happen. Just just to be to be clear because we don't have a ton of time and I didn't want to spend the whole thing talking about climate and everything. Um uh, do you think the the dangers are exaggerated or the the danger to the earth is exaggerated? Like like the da- like the dangers of climate change are exagger- exaggerated or climate change itself is exaggerated? Well, there's definitely Climate change, right? Climate. We've, okay. we've had ice ages. We've we've had not an ice ages. It it changes. It changes for a number of reasons. Um, one of those could be the the human uh, initiated changes in the concentration of, of carbon dioxide. But certainly, the Earth will be fine. The Earth will survive. Um, it uh, it looks like if there were large changes in the the level of uh, the seawater that would be very inconvenient for for humans, but uh, it wouldn't be a catastrophic thing. Kind of a, a slow, a slow thing that would that would mean displacing people, and that's that's one of the big concerns, right? That's one of the major ones. What we would do if people are are forced to move from one location to the other, and we can see that. That that migration causes difficulties uh, for other reasons in terms of war and things like that. Something the next uh, MP for London Fanshawe will uh, want to focus on is uh, General Dynamics, the contract with Saudi Arabians. Uh, this was signed by the previous Conservative government, has been upheld for now by the current Liberal government. Uh, there have been calls um, from... Uh, from some quarters to cancel the contract. Should we cancel the contract? Should we not cancel the contract? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I guess the first thing I would ask is what would be achieved if we canceled the contract? Um, and 
I, I don't know if we would get the results we, we would hope to. I might ask you what you think would be achieved by that. But uh, the downside would certainly be uh, many job losses here in London. So I'll certainly be advocating for that to continue because uh, we need those jobs. And those, there's a lot of um, supportive industries as well for that. And London's been hit a number of times with some large losses in, in companies. We don't, we don't need that again. Michael, I appreciate your time uh, today. Thank you very much. Sure. Uh, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. We continue on with the show. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. We're talking about bus rapid transit for the first hour and a bit on the program. Deputy Mayor Jesse Helmer has been one of the staunchest supporters of BRT since this debate began. He joins us now. Thanks for your time today. Well, thanks for having me on, Devin. Are, are you disappointed we don't have a full citywide transit network uh, this morning? Understanding it still has to be uh, finalized at full council tonight. Or are you glad that we have three-fifths of what has been discussed and that's been approved? I'm certainly glad to see the East London uh, link, as it's now being called, uh, go ahead, uh, be submitted for funding. I think that's going to be a transformational for that part of the city. It's going to unlock the development potential, those psychiatric hospital lands, which is a huge residential infill opportunity, lots of opportunity for new housing for uh, seniors who want to age in place in that particular part of the city, you know, more affordable kinds of uh, housing that are transit-oriented. And we just couldn't do it without great transit service. Uh, we couldn't do it as successfully without uh, the, the kind of transit service that would come from, from dedicated lanes and widening the Highbury Bridge. So I'm really excited to see that that one uh, is going ahead. It's also going to be a major improvement to have a great connection to Fanshawe College from uh, the south end of my ward in Old East Village and also into downtown, which a lot of people are headed downtown for all kinds of entertainment and uh, for work, and having great connection going west from uh, Old East Village into downtown is also going to be really important. Why do you think the the full plan didn't receive more buy-in? I think with transit in particular, um, one of the things that can happen is uh, people get fixated on the fact that a, a minority of people take it, and then they don't see the benefits for themselves uh, directly, um, either in the sort of near future or, or even in the long term. And since they don't see benefits for them d- directly, uh, they apply a kind of um, higher level of scrutiny on on the project than they would on anything else, um, even things that they also wouldn't use. You know, like a rec, rec center in the southwest, you know, might cost $25 million, $30 million. Lots of people in other parts of the city are never going to use that rec center, but does anyone really oppose uh, that? No. And, and I think that that's, that's a fundamental issue around transit, where people who are not taking transit, um, they, they don't see the value and they don't um, have enough empathy to people who do take transit and to say, you know, what's actually good for these folks? Because people get around the city in different ways, right? That's, that's something we know. We've got 16,000 people a day taking transit to get to work. Um, when we're designing a transit system, we need to design transit so it works for people who are taking transit, right? And when we design other ways of getting around the city, you know, roads for people who are driving and things like that, we have to design it so it works for those modes, right? And I think, unfortunately, we get this gap where we've got 
you know, eighty percent of the people, seventy five percent of the people um, who have opinions about transit, they're not taking transit, and so, sometimes it's very hard to um, close that empathy gap and, and really think about what's actually good for people who are going to be taking transit tomorrow, and what's good for for the long run in the city when some of these benefits are way out in the future. You know, so you know, building a more compact city is going to save us millions and millions and millions of dollars in the future. But those are not benefits that you're going to realize tomorrow. So it's the combination, I think, of the empathy gap, um, which I think is a difficult bridge to close for a lot of folks, um, and also um, the fact that benefits are, are pushed out into the future. A lot of them are uncertain. You know, we're dealing with a lot of uncertainty uh, always when we're making decisions like this. And so it's difficult to get through any kind of change of this magnitude. And I think that's something we see in transit projects, not just in London, but but all over the place. And when you get to a point where you have a lot of people taking transit, uh, the empathy gap problem disappears. The part about um, trying to get things uh, through that benefit people in the future, that remains. Um, but but I think that you get, get one of those problems resolved as you get more and more people taking transit. We typically measure ridership for LTC in terms of the rides, and we get into like somewhere between you know, 22, 24, 25 million rides a year. Do we know what percentage of Londoners use LTC? Because I wonder if sometimes it was like 40% or it's 30% or it's 50% or whatever the percentage might be. That's one way maybe that we get over that empathy gap. Yeah, I mean, there's different ways of looking at it, right? There's people who take transit ever. There's people who take transit to get to work. There's how many percentage of all the trips in a given day are are on transit. So depending on what you're looking at, you know, it varies. Uh, So I I said, you know, from the census, we know that 16,000 people are taking transit as the way they get to work, right? That doesn't count people who are going to school. That doesn't count people who are retired and aren't going on trips related to work. In my ward, you know, in Kipps Lane and Mornington, I have 35, 40% of people in those areas they're taking transit to get to work, right? Uh, in uh, Sunningdale and Hyde Park, you know, not so many people because they don't have great transit service out there to begin with. They live in residential neighborhoods that are not very transit supportive. Um, they, they, don't, they don't have problems paying for cars. They've got a couple cars probably, a lot of the households up there. So it varies quite a lot. You could have very low transit ridership in one part of the city and very high in another part. And something that's very frustrating for me is, as a councillor who's representing a a ward that's in the core of the city is that the infrastructure that is needed in the core for people who live in the core and who work in the core to get around in the core is different than the infrastructure that is needed in other parts of the city. You know, so, you know, if I were to run around voting against all the things that the suburbs need because, you know, that don't benefit people in my ward and because they live in the core, you know, I don't think that's an appropriate way of making decisions uh, around what what's sort of good for the city overall. Because if we recognize that Different kinds of neighborhoods need different kinds of transportation infrastructure, and we recognize that you know areas where we have a lot of transit riders and a lot of transit ridership, that's where we're going to provide the highest level of transit service and put in things like dedicated lanes. And um, you know I think that's the kind of approach we need to take: is that different neighborhoods and different parts of the city need the appropriate infrastructure um, to get people around in those parts. And and when you get down to it, the problem of uh, transit and and roadway width is a space problem, right? It's an efficiency problem. If we're going to move more and more people in the same width of roadway, we have to do it more efficiently, right? That's the only way to accommodate growth without ending up with paralyzing gridlock uh, in the long run. So, you know, City of London is 400,000 people. And over the next 20 years, we're going to be closing in on 500,000 people. And we can't go from 400 to 500,000 people like we went from 200 to 300,000 people. You know, all the things that we relied on to support that growth, that's not going to work again. 
as you get bigger and bigger, you need to do things differently. And we've taken some major steps forward last night. Uh, if we submit these projects and get those ones up and running, that's going to help. Uh, obviously, I would have liked to see the West Corridor uh, supported as well. Assuming um, uh, this is all approved tonight, I assume it will be. Are, are you confident we've uh, we can get these projects before the province and the federal governments to begin the approval process? So we can get started on these projects. I'm optimistic. I think it's uh, it's always uncertain when you go through a treasury board review, both at the provincial level and the federal level. You know, uh, uh, everybody on the bureaucratic side and then the political side of both levels they're going to be doing their due diligence on the projects you know that takes time that's not something that can be uh, rushed or should be rushed and so they're going to have to look at all the things that we submit uh, for the majority of these projects these are things that people are quite familiar with uh, so i think that it's going to be a relatively straightforward uh, i don't think it will take a huge amount of time i hope that we can get a decision relatively quickly uh, on the major ones that need to go early, you know, so there are some that have t- construction timelines like Badley Street, a grade separation. It would be good to know if we're going to get funding for that. Uh, it needs to get under construction soon. Uh, similarly, the the east and the south, those were ones that were supposed to go early in the construction phasing. And so finding out on those pieces, as well as the downtown loop, um, whether we have funding for those soon is, is important because we still have to do the detailed design, then we have to tender the projects, then we have to start... Uh, building it. So, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into each one of these things. Uh, the funding decision is just is just one of those steps along the way. And uh, one thing I've learned, and I guess it's my fifth year on council, um, there's a lot of votes on transit projects uh, along the way. This is just one of them. Jesse, I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Devin. That's Ward 4 Councillor and Deputy Mayor Jesse Helmer. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in with you. Uh, as I said, we're talking about transit for most of the show today. I want to turn our focus to some individuals, community groups who have been quite vocal and passionate about this on different sides of the issue. Marcus Plowright is with Build This City. He's a supporter of the full citywide transit plan. He joins me now. Thanks for your time today. It's my pleasure to join you. When we uh, last talked, you were making the case for the full transit network uh, after the meeting yesterday. That's not happening. Uh, What's your reaction to decisions made by council last night? I'm I'm disappointed, uh, to say the least, um, in the short-sightedness of many members of council. I'm very, uh, very pleased with several members of council who I think took the long-term uh, interests of our city at heart and, and are concerned about taxpayer dollars. But those who voted against uh, the north and west leg, I believe, are uh, spending taxpayer money that need, doesn't, doesn't need to be spent. It's needlessly wasted. It still needs to be finalized tonight. There's a chance some councillors could change the mind unlikely that's going to happen. Is this an opportunity missed not to do uh, the full plan that we've been talking about? Well, let me put that in context for you. There was $94 million left on the table, available provincial and federal funds that weren't tapped. Um, And for context, that's $500 for every household in this city. $500. This is from councillors 
voted against that, that uh, rail against property tax increases that are $50, $60 per property. This is $500, 10 times the order of magnitude. It was available, and it would rebuild roads. It would provide us with an integrated transit system, and, and we just didn't achieve it. And it's very sad for the city from my perspective. Your argument uh, for some of this, and you can correct me if I'm kind of summarizing this incorrectly, is like this, this is doing road work that we would need to do anyway, but we're also adding, you know, some obviously some transit lanes that would be going in. So we're, we're getting uh, value for a lot of different work all at once. Absolutely. Um, and by not putting the entire system together, um, I just think the hypocrisy of, our, uh, of some of our elected representatives. Um, let me give you an example. The reason why they supported the East and South Leg, many of them, uh, stated that it was because it serviced industrial areas that are underserviced. So by getting buses out to the end of Wellington, getting buses out uh, Oxford Street East, we are closer and better to integrate with regular bus service to service the industrial areas to get people to work. Jobs, jobs, jobs. Well, I have a question for you. Um, how does somebody living in Proudfoot, how does somebody living in the 51 apartment buildings that ring the Oxford and Wonderland corridor, how do they get to work now? If they can't get downtown to catch the BRT bus that takes them from downtown to those industrial areas, it only services the south and eastern residents in terms of getting to work. It's a p- hypocritical. Is there any worry that the north and the west legs uh, are, are going to fall behind? They're not going to happen at all? or um, I don't believe that's a worry. I believe that's a fact. The, the north and the west legs uh, are compromised. We are talking about adding four to five years in the process of trying to come up with solutions that may or may not be funded in the future. The North and West Legs were likely five to eight years out if approved, uh, if approved tonight. So uh, it's already uh, quite a waiting game, given that we've been at this for 10 years. It was going to be another eight years before it was fully built. Uh, the fact that uh, some members of council can't move faster than 18 years to get transit improved in these corridors is shameful. How do you think we got here? Why did this all go south? Um, I think it's just, honestly, um, councillors um, refusing to listen to argument. Um, you know, Mr. Squire started the evening by saying nobody's going to change his mind. Um, and he's, he, he, he's talking about the fact that he spent the last five years being the sole holdout, never once being willing to listen to reason, never once being willing to listen to other councillors who voted unanimously previous uh, outside of his vote uh, on the on the development of the of the transit system um, it, it's quite astonishing he's like the the Donald Trump of London Ontario in the sense that uh, he knows better than everyone else he knows better than the generals and the engineers and the city administrators and all these very well paid highly educated individuals who were asked by council to come up with the very best business plan to improve transit, attract federal and provincial funding, and get solutions. Uh, in the North Leg, 
six million rides every year just in that corridor alone are now being neglected. Those riders are being neglected on the premise that that Mr. Squire knows better than everyone else where where the transit should run. I want to get back to something you mentioned earlier in terms of you know the the south and east legs uh, being approved and, and jobs being the reason for that and. Uh, north in particular, uh, but also, sorry, sorry, the West in particular and, and North. There, so, there are some councillors who voted for, you know, yes on some legs, no on some other legs. Did some of the votes make sense? Because some were saying yes and no uh, on different things. There were some who were pretty consistent, no for everything, yes for everything, but the others who were kind of yes to some and no to others. It was uh, It was challenging to listen to. Sean Lewis is an example said that he supported the south leg and he supported uh, the dedicated lanes because on that leg he felt it was wise to try to help get people out of their cars. So if that makes sense for the south leg, why does it not make sense for the other legs, uh, you know, to get people out of their cars? What is it, what is it about the south leg that's so terribly unique? Uh, the other challenge I have, and, and, and I'd like to talk about the West Lake for a minute, because you started off this conversation by saying it may be possible to change some minds tonight at Council. Josh Morgan, our, our esteemed mayor, and Sean Lewis all voted against the West Lake. I want to put the West Lake in context for you. It's $72 million investment, and we get a reworked road, a widened Oxford Street from Warncliffe all the way out to Wonderland and beyond, to six lanes. That corridor is going to have to be widened in the next 10 years, um, regardless of whether we move forward with transit. But $70 million to widen that road, but also rework the entire road and bridge system from the art gallery all the way to Wonderland and Oxford. For $70 million. The property tax portion of that is $3.2 million. We get a $70 million benefit for $3 million investment. Instead of that, council voted to redo the intersection at Warncliffe and Oxford. Just that one intersection, they weren't, they're going to spend $17 million to rework one intersection, of which it's going to cost property taxpayers $1.4 million. So for an extra $1.7 million, we widen Oxford all the way out to Wonderland, and we rework the roads, the infrastructure, the sewers, um, the electrical grid, et cetera, curbs, gutters, sidewalks, bike lanes, all of that for an additional $1.7 million. That is wasteful, wasteful avoidance, uh, and, uh, and it's shameful that they would not see the, the financial benefit in that. Uh, Marcus, I appreciate your frankness and your perspective today. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. All the best. That's Marcus Plowright from Build This City, a community group that supported the full BRT plan. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. We are talking about BRT to start today, and I don't know if we should still be calling it BRT or something else, but uh, for the time being, we'll go with BRT. But 
is BRT BRT if it's not the full BRT, or I, I know I said this before, I'm probably going to say it again, but uh, maybe we should be having a name change for this. That is beside the point, but we are talking about transit on the show today because of the decision made by a full council last night. It wasn't a city council meeting. City council meets as city council tonight where they will finalize their decision. Yesterday was the Strategic Priorities and Policy Committee And that is a meeting of the full council. So it is likely that what was decided yesterday on transit will be uh, finalized today, but is not guaranteed. We can go back to uh, the uh, Joe Fontana years uh, when uh, there would be a decision made one night that's uh, changed the other night. So uh, we shall see. But we were talking about this today, obviously, because it, it is the issue in London and has been the issue in London uh, for a while now and is probably going to continue to be the issue in London for a while now because the reaction I'm seeing from a lot of people is uh, they're not happy. And those people are on the pro-BRT side. Those people are on the anti-BRT side. And so there's a lot of people who aren't exactly um, thrilled with the decision by councillors yesterday. To talk about this, we are joined by uh, Dan McDonald, spokesperson for Downshift. Thanks for your time today. No, it's a pleasure to be here. There has uh, been a lot of debate in this city over the uh, past couple of years on uh, bus rapid transit. Um, Do you consider BRT to be dead if it's not all of BRT or in some parts? Or or how do you read the decision made by council yesterday? Well, I I guess in a rather crude fashion, I, I kind of liken it to the putting lipstick on a pig. Um, line. Uh, I, I don't know what they think they've accomplished by taking a plan that was somewhat overwhelmingly rejected by a lot of people at the polls last year, carving it up into pieces, and then saying, oh goodness, this will work. Uh, I just, I don't know how that works in your everyday life. I don't know how that works in business, and I don't know how that works in government. The, some of the votes were interesting. You know, I can understand because uh, you know, there are opponents, there are detractors of uh, BRT. I can understand some of the councillors who voted for all five components. I can understand the councillors who voted against all five components. But those who kind of voted for some and not for some um, are a little uh, are interesting in terms of some of their motivations for for one leg over the other. Well, and and this is where you why when you put projects like this together, you fall back on business plans. Not only do you look at the pretty stuff with the pictures and the diagrams and all that stuff, you have to say, does this make sense? Is the ridership going to be there? And we know that the city was told very early on by consultants, on several of these routes, they were predicting absolutely no increase in ridership. And then all of a sudden, the IBI guys from London were replaced by IBI guys from Toronto. And all of a sudden, oh, we have business cases now. They don't have solid business cases that talks about people who are going to use these routes. And to eliminate uh, the West End, uh, all they've done there is, uh, again, alienated a vast, vast area from London from any sort of improved bus service. I mean, good Lord, uh, the city has grown well beyond the corner of Wonderland and Oxford, and that was going to be the extent of the BRT. 
I mean, that that almost falls into a category of just being a joke. What sort of process would you have, if we could go back, say, like four months to when this new council took office after the municipal election, what sort of process would you have wished um, they had taken uh, to get to this point rather than obviously the one they've they've taken and the decisions they've made last night? Well, over the last two years, what has been the common cry from the feds in the province? Stop rushing bullheadedly forward. So they get some deadline from the mayor, which now the province is, is questioning its credibility. And all of a sudden we're lunging forward. And this is from a leader who said he was against it, uh, who obviously has uh, some, something miraculous has happened and he's changed his mind. Um, I would have liked to have seen a council that looked at the plan, really had business cases that backed it up, and did it based on fact and not on wishful thinking. And so much of the BRT right from day one from people like Helmer and Turner was all wishful thinking. They had no facts to back this stuff up. And to this very day, they don't have strong uh, ridership numbers that they think they, they can bring into play here. And as for the Wellington Road saying, oh, that's the gateway, uh, the gateway for what? Uh, what are we expecting? Are we building this for people coming in from out of town? Oh, what what does that gateway word mean? It also it sounds very sexy, but it it doesn't have a lot of practical application. Do you think it can work? We we have uh, some parts of the city with this this rapid transit that's coming in, and other parts of the city that doesn't. Do those two do they mix or do they fit? No, absolutely. They they just don't make common sense. I mean, think of any project you've been involved in in your life. Say you were going to start a radio station. And you said, oh, well, we're going to buy everything, but we're not going to buy a control board for the main control board in the, uh, in the announce studio. Oh, we don't think we need that. Well, then you wouldn't have a radio station because you wouldn't be able to broadcast. In this case, you're, you've got components jimmy-rigged around the city how do you quantify and qualify whether that's a success? Uh, it, it, I can't think of any other project on the face of the earth where you have all these components, you do some odd selection process, and then say, oh, we have, we have a viable system that we can now review. I, I, it's, it was like uh, before, before uh, Christmas, uh, uh, Paul Hubert and Jesse Helmer stopped them from having any sort of an audit about the money that had been spent. Well, you know why they stopped that? Because they didn't want people to know how much they'd spent. It's going to be the same from here on in. How much are they going to spend on these little tiny parcels? And how are they going to quantify how that works? And where's the business case? I mean, it's, it's not sexy, but a lot of this stuff comes down to numbers. You alluded to this earlier, but how do you think this went south? Where did this go wrong in this? Because I'm hearing a lot of people who liked BRT who are not exactly happy this morning. I'm hearing people who had concerns with BRT who are not happy with this this morning either. Well, and there are a lot of cynical politicians, and I can think of a couple without naming them, who say that's the perfect, perfect scenario. You leave a situation when, and everybody's not quite happy. Well, at the end of the day... The zealots 
the zealots of BRT, I think, really, really came up short here. Because when it takes the years to build what they're going to build, and don't let anybody tell you they're going to have some big shovel in the ground next year. They're just not. It takes design. I've worked on these projects in other cities. It takes years for the proper design and then to put the shovel in the ground. So I think the zealots of BRT are, are, are probably quite bitter today because they'd been sold a bill of goods by a, a couple of councillors who claimed that this was going to be the zenith of improving London's transit. It, 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 it isn't going to be built in time, and it isn't going to be built quickly enough to keep those people happy. Dan, I uh, certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Devin. That is Dan McDonald from Downshift. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. We have just enough time to set up the second hour of the program. We'll continue our discussion on BRT. We'll also talk about federal politics and cybersecurity. That and more in the second hour of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. We're into the second hour of the program. This is Devin Peacock in while Mike Stubbs is in Windsor with the London Knights. Mike will be back with you uh, tomorrow. I want to continue our focus on transit for the next little while. A big reason City Council has been operating on the timetable it's been on is because Marriott Holder wants to ensure the city can access the $370 million in provincial and federal funding. So I talked to earlier today Peter Fracascados, the MP for the London North Centre. He has been front and centre during this entire uh, debate on transit. At the time of the interview, the provincial process to take applications for transit initiatives was not open. It has now opened since we did that interview. So there's a portion of the interview where this is addressed. That has now changed since that interview was done. just want to make that clear before we get into the interview. Here is that conversation between Peter Fragascados and I. We have uh, talked about this issue once or twice in the past. You've said from the beginning the federal government is not going to decide routes for the project, but you also represented it possibly the most controversial of all the routes in the in the North Leg as part of your riding. Uh, what do you make of the decision made by City Council last night? Well, of course, these decisions are always to be left to the hands of City Council, and so I trust their judgment. Clearly, there was concerns expressed, particularly, Devin, as you know, by downtown business owners. Uh, but others as well about the uh, the north route and the west route, and so the council has decided to to not move ahead with uh, with those elements of the proposed plan. But uh, I, I simply go back to the fact that we need better transit, and I think what has been ultimately proposed by this council will allow for better transit in this city. With there being um, th- this rapid transit for the downtown loop for the south and the east, is there a concern for you that the west and the north are going to be let left behind some of this better transit? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think we have an excellent transit system in this city that needs, of course, improvement. But I trust uh, the city council. I trust the LTC to carry out 
uh, their good work. It's not the place of a federal government and a federal MP, as I've said many times, and as, as you uh, alluded to at the outset of the interview, to dictate what routes should look like. My job all along has been to bring forward the concerns of constituents. There were many concerns raised when this whole debate around transit began a few years back, and I made sure that my constituents were heard. And so I, for example, to, uh, to bring up something quite specific, I pushed the previous council and the previous mayor when they did not want to do a public consultation. I pushed them to do that, and they did that. They heard feedback, and that feedback was communicated not just to them, but certainly during the previous municipal campaign. I think we saw that uh, candidates and ultimately those who were elected had really listened to, uh, to constituents uh, not just in, in the areas of London that you're referring to here, uh, people living in Old North, for example, and in the, the western area that would have been touched by the route that uh, that was uh, done away with last night, but uh, really uh, concerns across the city about transit and what the plan should ultimately look like. Um, so it hands off uh, from my perspective uh, when it comes to specific designs, but I'm always going to stand by constituents and make sure they're their views on, on issues such as this are, are listened to. Do you think their concerns have been met? Well, uh, we will see. I mean, I haven't, uh, it's one, uh, it's not even 24 hours after the uh, the vote took place last night. I, I'm sure I will hear feedback. Uh, so uh, I, I remain uh, open to, of course, as always, listening to them, whether they wish to, uh, whether constituents wish to get in touch over the phone or uh, via email. Uh, but I think what the uh, the current mayor and what the current council have done is look at this issue from a very pragmatic way. They have not tried to put in place a perfect transit plan. If we try to put in place something that's perfect, we'll be waiting a long time, Devin. I think what they've done is, is done what's possible. They've looked at this from a very prudent, pragmatic perspective and acted accordingly. When the uh, federal funding uh, portion of this, the $200 million, 204, 205 to be exact, I believe, uh, was made available, you were uh, quite clear in that the money was available for transit in London, not necessarily uh, BRT. That was a process. It could be, but ultimately a process had to see its way through. Uh, You also said it was there for when we needed it. Did London need to rush to meet the end of month deadline or did we have more time? Well, just to to remind, I know you certainly are aware of these uh, technical points, but just to remind viewers that um, about the specifics of the funding, the money is certainly there. We're talking about two hundred and four point eight million dollars, to be quite exact. That is there for the next decade, at least under our government. We've committed that. What a pre, what a future government could do under perhaps Andrew Scheer, if that were to happen. I worry that that money would be taken away because uh, Mr. Scheer has not been at all shy about saying that he would uh, very anxiously uh, cut uh, left, right, and center, and I worry that our transit money would disappear. But under this government, that money is committed, it is there, and it can be used for any purpose relating to transit. We remain quite flexible. This money can be used for any purpose as long as transit is the focus. Uh, now and into the next uh, nine years or so. Uh, beyond that, when you asked me, Devin, about uh, deadlines, uh, so there's no, I want to be absolutely clear on this point because I think there's some confusion. 
So to clarify, there's no federal deadline on accepting transit applications, but dates do matter and uh, decision-making does matter. So the way it works is that the municipal government, once it has the transit plan it wishes to go forward with, will then submit to the provincial government that, that application for review. That application, once the provincial government decides, will go to the federal government for uh, the review. And we will carry out our due diligence by reviewing the business case very closely and then make a decision on funding. The problem right now is that the provincial government under Doug Ford has not opened up the intake process, uh, whereby municipalities would submit transit plans or any other infrastructure plan, uh, which is tremendously problematic. You have cities that are ready to go ahead with infrastructure plans that can't get past the, uh, the provincial government because that door is not, is not open yet. That door needs to be opened by the Ford government, where I think the uh, local government here under Mayor Holder's leadership is, is looking at the federal government and saying that we need to get things done. Is, as you know, there's a federal election coming up. Uh, at some point, there will be a decision to stop all funding and all review. And the, the more there's delay and dithering at the municipal level, the more, uh, the more there's a guarantee that we won't be able to see the application in time. So I think it's important that, that decisions are made and that transit moves forward with a, a vision for transit that we can ultimately look at. But the key is, is the provincial government really has to open up intake. They're, they're failing uh, Ontarians here. As a hypothetical, let's assume uh, the province does open that up and that process is allowed to continue so that it can progress to the federal stage of all of this. Is there, uh, because we do have that federal election, is there a point uh, in June, July, or, or whenever when, you know, just because we do have an election coming up when that process would have to at least be paused, if not end? Yes, there will be a pause. Now, I can't tell you when that pause would be because I, I simply don't know right now. But as you know, when governments, when Parliament rises uh, in the lead-up to an election, there is what's called a blackout period where review of applications that have been submitted from different levels of government, whether transit-related or otherwise, uh, that pauses, and therefore uh, the release of, of money for those projects also pauses. That is a real possibility here. The longer that the Ford government delays intake, uh, the greater the likelihood that the federal government won't be able to review this project in time before the, uh, before the next federal election. Uh, but there's also a responsibility on the shoulders of the municipal government to, to make a decision and to go forward here. I mean, we've been debating this, quite frankly, uh, Devin, for the past several years. I have never been one to be a... a in a rush when it comes to transit, but I think the the debate has taken place not just formally last night, but really the last municipal campaign was a was a referendum on the future of transit in London in in many many ways. I mean, the other issues were discussed certainly, but it was uh, in in many ways a transit election. So Londoners want to see better transit at the time the municipal government makes a decision on on what it wants to do. Just uh, just. For my knowledge, and I don't want to belabor the point too much, but for, for over the summer, that review process could still continue. Or, like, if when if MPs with that, when the House you know rises you know for the summer break in in June or whenever it might be, would would that be a possible date? Or I know you can't say the exact date because you don't know, but theoretically, the review could happen over the summer. Well, it it, it really depends. It's, it's okay. a hypothetical, Devin. So I, I I'm 
not in a position to answer that for that reason. Okay. Uh, just finally, uh, there is some money still left uh, because of some of the decisions made last night with the North and the uh, West routes not uh, gaining approval. That leaves about ninety-four provincial and federal fund, ninety-four million in provincial and federal funding still available for the federal portion. Um, uh, understanding what you said previously in terms of you know the possible you know you know governments changing, not changing, whatever the case might be, that money left over is still available to London uh, until until if, if we have a reason for it. When I say the money is committed, Devin, I, I mean it. That money is committed to the City of London. And so the City of London can decide to access it anytime it wishes, so long as the focus is, is transit projects and transit is at the center of what the city wishes to do. Uh, we have, are not going to waver from that at all. Uh, that money is, is there, and we've committed to, to London. We've also committed uh, money to, to other municipalities because we know that Priorities can sometimes change. What is submitted today as a plan and a vision uh, will certainly be looked at, but that's not to say in the future some other concern relating to transit or some other vision for transit, uh, improving it somehow, uh, building a new route, for instance, or to be much more modest, buying new buses, uh, whatever the, uh, you know, this council would choose to do in the future or a future city council would choose to do, is is their own decision, and we will look at anything relating to uh, to transit, Devin. As I said, this two hundred and four, two hundred and five million dollar commitment that has been made, uh, we made it last year, and we said it's good for a decade. And under Liberal government, it would be good for a decade. My sincere worry is that Andrew Shear would cut and slash that money, and, and any improvements that would need to be made in lines transit system down the road couldn't be done with federal with uh, the federal money wouldn't, wouldn't be there for uh, for that purpose under a sheer government. That is Peter Fragascados in conversation with yours truly earlier today. Again, the process for the province to receive applications on transit was not open at the time of that interview. It is now open. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Listening to London Live, this is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. We will talk a little bit about BRT and then move on. I know we've talked about it a lot in the show today, but it's one of the biggest issues we've had in the city for a number of years. It was interesting to see the votes roll in on BRT. Some councillors voted for all five components of it. Some voted against all five components. Others voted for and against. Ward 5 councillor Maureen Cassidy was among those who voted for all components of BRT. She's also going to be bringing forward a motion before City Council tonight demanding London get the $10 million it put into the London Medical Network back following the news that Western's pulling out of the project. To talk about this, we are joined by Councillor Cassidy. Thanks for your time today. My pleasure, Devin. Uh, well, let's start with uh, BRT. You were one of the few councillors to vote for all five components of the citywide uh, network. Uh, why do you think more of your colleagues did not uh, uh, vote in favor of that whole citywide network? Ha. <laughs> um, you know, they they have their reasons, which they articulated at at the meeting. At the end of the day, um, it's a lot easier. So, if we're, we're going to go all the way back to the election campaign, it was a it would have been a lot easier to run on an anti BRT platform. There were there were some. 
very well-organized people with a lot of money behind the anti-BRT um, crowd. And, and because it's a complex and complicated project, it's, it's much easier to sow fear and, and, and antagonism than it is to sit and take the time to try to explain. There were, there were at least six current counselors that did run on a pro-BRT platform in addition to other issues. So, you know, I would say there were some candidates that definitely ran as, as, with anti-BRT as their full platform of their campaign. That, that would have been really easy for me to do. It would have been really easy for Anna Hopkins to do because there, there was some opposition in both of our wards. But, uh, you know, we have to make decisions that are good for everybody in London, everybody. And, you know, when you look at the, the abysmal turnout in municipal elections, in general, London has actually one of the higher voter turnouts at the municipal level, but we dropped from 43% voter turnout in the last election to 39% in this election. And there are, so that means there are a lot of people that are not voting. There are a lot of people, I know people that, in, that live in apartment buildings, for example, tend to be higher users of transit. The, the, uh, the failure of getting those people on the voter list, of getting their voter registration cards to each and every individual apartment unit in, in the city, that's a true failure of democracy. And so there were a lot of people for various reasons that did not vote. I represent the non-voters as much as I represent the voters. And I think that's what people forget to remember <laughs> if that's possible. Are you disappointed? The, I mean, this is, you know, something, I mean, obviously there's been uh, uh, the BRT whole plan has had its uh, supporters, it's had its detractors. It's something that we've been discussing, you know, for quite a while now. Are you disappointed the full thing hasn't gone through? Obviously you supported all components for it because you voted for all five components for it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm a little bit disappointed. But uh, but at the end of the day, we we... We needed a base to start with, and the base was supposed to be all five legs. And, and, and the starting point was to create a world-class transit system in the city to continue to attract the employers like Maple Leaf Canada, to continue to attract uh, attention and investment in London, to continue to attract events like the Junos to come to London. So, you know, over the last four years, we've had a really – interesting conversation in London. We've had a lot of conversations about moving the city forward, and, and we started and, and are in the process of incorporating a whole lot of city-building initiatives in, in London, Ontario. And so we've created a buzz, and that buzz is not going away because of one vote last night. That buzz will continue. And, you know, Richmond Street is bound to see some kinds of improvements to transit. It's just not going to happen right away. And, you know, frankly, Richmond Street, from, from my conversations with staff over the last four years, Richmond Street was always going to be one of the more complex parts of the project. And so further down the line, it was not going to start on day one. So it was always going to be further down the line in a 10-year project. It's just going to be a little bit further down the line now. I want to switch over uh, to the London Medical Network, which has uh, suddenly become a bit of an issue. As I understand it, you're going to be putting forward a motion at City Council today looking to see if London can get its money back now that Western's pulling out. Is that correct? Yes, 
Yes. So, Devin, I I circulated uh, my intentions to the rest of council so that there's no surprises. Uh, I want to put an emergent motion on the floor tonight. I will have to ask for leave to do that. It has to be recognized as something that happens that has to happen fairly quickly, so it can't be deferred too long. And I think the fact that Western pulling out of the network has should raise alarm bells with my colleagues. Uh, the agreement was always contingent upon two other partners putting money in. So, you know, if you if you look at the agreement, it's really not that complicated. And it says right in the agreement, London will put the money into the network once we have this funding commitment from Western and a funding commitment from FedDev. And FedDev has turned the medical network down twice, if not three times, in their applications for funding. And Western is now pulled out. So we're not going to see the $20 million that has been committed by Western. So that, in my mind, that makes the agreement null and void. Are, are, like, what went wrong here, do you think? It's, and it's, uh, should the London Medical Network people be coming before City Council to kind of explain what's happened here? They've come every single year, Devin, and they've never been able to explain adequately but to me what they're doing that's benefiting London, that's living up to the agreement. There was supposed to be all hundreds of millions of dollars in economic spin-off to the city. I'm not disputing the good research that's, that's going on at Western and at, at, uh, at the various research institutes in London. Definitely, those, are, those have societal benefits, but the agreement is very clear that there would be a hundred, hundreds of millions of dollars in economic spin-off, direct economic spin-off to London's economy, and that there would be 500 new jobs created. That is uh, Maureen Cassidy, Ward 5 Councillor uh, for London, speaking in conversation with me earlier today. We need to break for news. We come back more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Good afternoon. It is 2.30. I'm Jacqueline LaBelle in downtown London. Beautiful blue skies. It is three degrees. There's some concern among councillors about where the city's bus rapid transit project goes from here. The Strategic Priorities and Policy Committee, which includes all members of council, decided yesterday to go ahead with three of the five BRT routes, scrapping the north and west elements of the plan. They're recommending the city go ahead with the downtown loop, the Wellington Road Gateway and the East London Link. But not everyone's happy with how it all shook out. Councillor Phil Squire says splitting up the plan creates uncertainty going forward. The challenge is that we really have no business case for what we're doing. We have no idea what the operating costs will be of the system that we've chosen to do. So we're in, a, we're in sort of uncharted territory where we don't know uh, whether what we're, uh, we're wanting to seek approval for is even going to work. Ward 13 Representative Ariel Cayabaga says uh, they need to do what's best for the city as a whole and not individual areas. Voting for something based on, you know, a, a group of people who have lobbied and who have, you know, who are against it or because your specific uh, ward is not interested in getting on the bus is not a reason. It's not acceptable, in my opinion. I think that we are elected to improve our city, and, and transit is one of those things that we have to continue to improve, uh, not to improve every 20 years or every 30 years. It's expected a council will go through with the recommendation during its meeting this afternoon. A 27-year-old woman's facing charges of aggravated assault in connection with a stabbing in the city's northeast over the weekend. 
Police say it happened a Saturday night at a resident near, uh, residence near Kipps Lane and Arbor Glen Crescent. Police say a man and two women were at a residence when one woman punched the man. The other woman told the suspect to leave, and that's when police say the suspect stabbed the woman. Police say the victim suffered non-life-threatening injuries. The suspect fled but was found and arrested yesterday. 27-year-old Keeley Diane Shipway is also charged with possession of a weapon and assault. There's been another twist in the story of Empire actor Jussie Smollett. Chicago police have dropped all charges against him. Attorneys for Smollett say their client's record has been wiped clean and he's relieved to have the situation behind him. Smollett was indicted on 16 felony counts related to making a false report after he said he'd been attacked by two men who shouted racial and homophobic slurs. You're listening to 980 CFPL. We are into the home stretch of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. We'll shift our attention away from transit, talk about federal politics for the rest of the program. The House of Commons Ethics Committee meets today where SNC Lavalin will be raised. To talk about this and more, we're joined by Jason Leader. He's a conservative strategist from Enterprise, a PR and governmental relations firm. Thanks for your time today. Hey, thanks, Devin. Thanks for having me. No problem. You said something interesting on Twitter a couple weeks ago, I think it was. It's hard to tell with time with this whole SNC Lavalin <laughs> thing. Like, like it, it, it hasn't been around for that long, and I'm already sick of it in a sense of, I, like, I, I, it's, it, it seems like it's never-ending. So I, I say that as a we're guy a, that... We're a couple months in, and it doesn't seem, it's showing no signs of ending. So I think we've always just got to settle in, grab the popcorn, and see where we're going. Yeah, and just, before all the partisans and you know, radio land think, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm pro-Trudeau, I'm anti-Trudeau. In, in media, we, we live these stories so much faster than everyone else. So I get sick of pretty much every story. So people can calm down. Um, I hear you. But you know, you said something interesting a couple weeks ago uh, about you know the the liberals heading into 2015 had a lot of uh, discipline and message discipline, and yeah. you cannot absolutely say that for this at all because they've had virtually no discipline in terms of just explaining themselves on this issue. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting to watch them just blow themselves up. Now, as I've said to a number of people, as you as you know, I identify as a conservative. I worked for Stephen Harper, not in the 2015 campaign, but earlier than that. Um, but I watched the 2015 campaign fairly uh, as an interested observer, and the, the Liberals ran a very good campaign. They had a, a good, solid message. They stuck to it. Uh, the Prime Minister himself performed very well. Um, you know, it turns out they weren't such great managers. And I think, I think, to be honest with you, not a lot of people hired Justin Trudeau because they thought he was going to be the best manager of government. They hired him because uh, he represented a change, and he was sort of like the sunny ways thing, and what really got bought into. But the discipline that they showed in that campaign has been replaced with chaos over the last number of weeks. And, and truthfully, if you've been watching this PMO for the last number of years, they haven't been great administrators. They're great communicators generally, and, they're not, and they haven't been great administrators. But this is an interesting kettle of fish. They are not communicating. They are not, uh, you know, they're not managing this crisis in any way that's effective. And they've actually put themselves at risk. The, thing that, the point that I keep making, Devin, is they're facing two untested, untried, unknown leaders, Jagmeet Singh at, for the NDP and Andrew Scheer for the Conservatives. They should be 10 or 15 points ahead of these guys. How are they 5 to 10 points down right now? They're running an international celebrity. I think that's what's confusing most of us is they just can't seem to get their act together. The fact that uh, they do have uh, Justin Trudeau is, if, if it was, you know, 
Joe Schmo as uh, leader of the Liberals? Could they be down even for, like, is Justin Trudeau kind of, as strange as it may seem, helping them a little bit stay where they are in the polls? I think it's a great question. It, you know, it's always been understood that Justin Trudeau was uh, was was ran ahead of the party. You know, uh, Justin Trudeau was a very popular leader who, um, you know, Canadians, especially women, um, really flocked to in great numbers in 2015. I think all of that was true. Um, the question, I think, for the Liberals now, and uh, you know, they're not making a change in leadership unless something crazy happens here over the next little bit. Is 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 this guy still? the the draw that he once was i think a lot of canadians have looked at him and sort of found him found him wanting uh the problem with them is they promised the world and didn't really deliver on a lot of different things but canada listen canada is still the best place to live in the world the economy outside alberta is relatively strong they've got positive things going for them in terms of a uh, to run a campaign on but they just don't seem to be get back, getting back on message i don't remember the last time that they were on message and i'm talking months not weeks um you know and that's that's not good in an election year. I just, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just surprised they haven't been able to find their way on this just, just by the simple passage of time. But it's like it reminds me of the Simpsons episode where they, uh, you know, they dig up stupid and they're just like they're digging up and they're digging <laughs> up. I just, I, I don't, I don't understand any of the messaging they've put forward on this, especially like, you know, and it's, it's, it's going to sound like I'm taking a shot, but like, like Justin Trudeau apologizes for a lot in Canadians past. Like he, yeah. but he, but he didn't apologize for this. He, when he spoke to the nation, like he didn't apologize, which I thought is what he was going to do. And I know you set out a whole thing of things he could do. And since then, Michael yeah. Wernick has left, but he didn't apologize, which I thought was a bit of a missed uh, opportunity. Or, or even take responsibility, Devin, right? It's, it's one thing to, okay, I guess, maybe he doesn't want to apologize. Okay. But take some responsibility. Obviously, mistakes were made here. And they didn't really take responsibility. And that's, I had, I had not, I, I think I wrote something one time, strength of will is a huge uh, um, advantage in politics actually like will in business and in leadership and in politics is actually a very big um, uh, difference maker. The problem with them here is I didn't, I didn't really foresee or understand how stubborn Mr. Trudeau is. Uh, that, those, are, those are sort of like the kind of qualities that were attributed to Mr. Harper or even Mr. Kretchen back in the day. Mr. Trudeau has proven to be a very stubborn man. And, and the problem is actually at the top on this. I, I know a lot of liberals, a lot of liberals in senior positions, they're telling me that he doesn't believe he did anything wrong, and therefore will not apologize, no matter what. Um, that's his line in the sand. And they're making it worse. I mean, they've got an ethics committee meeting today. Now, they'll skate through that meeting. There's, they've got one liberal who might vote against them on that, but you know, they're going to skate through that meeting. But yesterday, they made it worse. They, they, they smeared and attacked the chief justice in Manitoba, because, you know, just for sort of uh, just to just to just to send something negative out about a Jody Wilson Raybould and they're catching a lot of flack on that today and it's it's sort of an inside Ottawa story but it's one of those stories where the media and people who know are sort of looking at them and saying this is how far you're willing to go on this issue this is unbelievable yeah i mean uh i'm not in the business of giving anyone in politics any but to me just stop talking about it like you know don't bring it up like uh, obviously don't smear uh people but just stop talking about it if you're not going to have a coherent coherent message about it you should be the director of issues management in the PML, my friend. <laughs> your uh, your advice is better than theirs. Uh, so, with this ethics committee uh, meeting today, uh, what should we expect, Miss? What do you think could come from not just this meeting, but any follow follow up meetings? Sure. Yeah. So the liberals are going to be able to shut most of this committee stuff down because they've, you know, they've now they've got it. They, they're one of the reasons why this is go to the ethics committee is number one, there's a conservative chair of that committee. Number two, there's a there's a 
a maverick liberal MP, MP named Nate Erickson Smith, who's on the uh, who's on the committee, who is likely. I think he, you know, there, there's. I think he voted for a public inquiry into this <laughs> back in the day. So, so he's not really on Team Liberal on this one. So the vote's likely to be close, but you need two Liberals to vote, vote for you if you're the opposition rather than one. And I think the most they could hope for is, is, is one. So this thing's probably, but, you know, again, you're going to get another circus, another group of people talking about it. Um, and, you know, the PM was asked this morning, did your office leak the information on the, uh, on the, uh, on the Chief Justice? Everyone knows they did. And, you know, it's just, uh, it's just sort of gross what's going on in Ottawa right now. And they just can't get, can't get around it, my friend. Well, this is being underreported in all of this. And it's kind of, it's a, it's a different conversation for a different day. But the idea that a public inquiry rests on the sitting government to call it in this country, um, I, I think shows something's broken where, you know, in the United States, there was a special counsel's office, you know, they, they set that up. There's a mechanism in place and maybe it's a little bit wonky there too. I don't know. There's no perfect system yeah. anywhere, but the idea that the sitting government essentially has to call for the inquiry into themselves, uh, if they've done anything wrong and there've been plenty of calls in this case for it, that, that to me says our system needs to be fixed in some way. Yeah, whatever you think of the current government or the past government or whatever, I will say this: the Canadian Prime Minister or Canadian Premiers or Judge, Jury, and Executioner on their own uh, on their own stuff, and 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 the United States, uh, they've got a system that is uh, wildly messed up in a lot of different ways, but they have built in checks and balances that are different than ours, and and they do have ways for uh, for for uh, legislators to get out information that we don't have here. But, you know, uh, different parties benefit from it. We benefited from it as conservatives, I'm sure, at times. And, you know, Mr. Paul Rooney and Mr. Mr. Harper, the liberals are benefiting from it right now. But the question you got to ask yourself, I guess, is are they really benefiting from it? If they would have just let this inquiry go, let everybody speak, let everybody have their say, um, take, a, take responsibility and move on, that, would, that could have been done two months ago and they'd be in a lot better shape than they're in today. Jason, I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for having me, Devin. Have a good day. That is Jason Leader. We need to pause. We come back. We'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. How worried are you about there being a cybersecurity issue during the federal election? I'm not saying the word hack because I don't want to come across as alarmist, but is there a concern? I think there should be, not a hacking per se, but some sort of a cybersecurity issue. It's being revealed that several Election Canada websites and some personal websites for MPs don't have the basic encryption necessary to stop your information from being hacked as it's sent from point A to point B. Alexander Essex is a cybersecurity expert at Western University. He specializes in democratic institutions. He joins us now. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, this uh, whole issue is something I'm interested in. I, I saw, you know, a couple articles a while ago warning about, you know, potential for problems with Elections Canada's website, with some personal MPs' websites. And so now uh, I see another story about how some of these same websites not having basic encryption to protect uh, information that would be on them, Canadians' information in particular. How concerned should we be about this? Well, um, I, uh, first of all, this is not a critical vulnerability. Um, yes, it's uh, the case that without basic encryption, uh, your, your data in transit uh, to, to the web server 
uh, is not protected. Um, and so, for example, uh, if, uh, in the case of Elections Canada, they actually had uh, uh, web forms where you could type in your, your information to, to you know, get uh, you know, documents and order, order reports and so forth. Uh, so those um, those forms were collecting this information insecurely. So it is going across the internet in an unencrypted, unprotected state. So uh, Elections Canada has, however, moved to disable those forms uh, until such time as they're able to get the encryption enabled. How long does it take to encrypt something like that? Um, well, to set it up, uh, I mean, it's so. For, for a basic website, uh, it's not that hard. You know, um, all of my software engineering students uh, do it as a matter of course when they're when they're doing their projects. Um, it's something that anyone that that works in in sort of the you know the the world wide web you know industry uh, is 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 familiar with. And there's a lot of products uh, in the market today that will just do it automatically for you. So you know, if you uh, host your website on Amazon or or something like that, it just does it automatically. Um, now, if you're a big enterprise environment, if you're a big organization, you know, maybe you have some, you know, little specific things that you need to address in your environment first before you can turn it on. But uh, in general, it shouldn't take uh, months and months. Um, it just, I think, comes down to uh, uh, institutional priorities. I don't want to scare people and think we're going to get hacked, you know, the second uh, there's an election or it's, we're, the hacking's imminent or anything like that. But it is a bit concerning that something that seems like uh, uh, you would think would be front and center hasn't really been done. Yeah. And, you know, it's um, uh, fortunately at the federal level, we vote on paper ballots, uh, which, you know, might surprise people to realize is actually uh, very robust against cyber attacks. <laughs> um, <laughs> But um, I think the real issue here is the kind of message uh, that it's sending. You know, um, if you're a professional uh, uh, individual, you know, one thing that you would probably do is you would tie your shoes up. And if you were walking around with your shoelaces undone, you know, people would say, well, who's this person in a suit walking around with their shoelaces undone? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a basic best practice. Um, the banks have been doing it for almost 25 years. Even Facebook's been doing it for over 10 years. Um, it's really time to, um, to, to take that basic step. You know, the government of Canada recommends it. Uh, the U.S. government recommends it for all governmental agencies that this encryption is on. It's just, it's the, it's the basic best practice uh, of, of, of today. So uh, we just want to make sure that all of our agencies are, um, you know, sending that message that, you know, they're taking the most basic cybersecurity seriously. That's an interesting turn of phrase. Even Facebook does it. So if, if even Facebook's doing it, then, you know, we should be doing it. Well, you know, Google had to uh, uh, hassle them into it back in uh, around circa 2008 because uh, they weren't doing it. And uh, there was um, some uh, interesting uh, hacker tools that people were releasing to demonstrate how, you know, you could take over people's Facebook pages. You know, you're sitting at the coffee shop and then they hijack your session. Uh, so that's ultimately what got them to, uh, to act. Um, and so, you know, but uh, we're starting to see action in uh, the, the political scene here in Canada. Um, the Liberal Party of Canada, uh, Friday afternoon, um, their, all of their MP pages uh, were insecure. And then by Sunday afternoon, they were all um, in, being encrypted. So, uh, I think we're moving in the right direction, but we got we got more work to do. Is there a way for the average person to be able to tell how safe a website is? Yeah, um, well, so the the most basic thing you can look for um, when you go to a website is the little padlock icon up in the browser bar, uh, up where the address is. Now, 
if you're using, uh, you know, um, Windows or using Mac, uh, they have their browsers and you'll see a little padlock icon. But what Google Chrome has done is they went the extra step. And um, back last summer, they, they, they took a position. They said, look, this encryption is basic. Everyone on the web today should be offering it. Uh, if you're not offering it, we want to point that out to our users. So there's a little badge if you go to one of these websites. Like if you go to elections.ca right now in Google Chrome, it'll say beside it, not secure. So if you go to a website, if you're, if you're a Chrome user and you see that not secure, um, you know, you, you, have to, you, you have to consider that the information you're seeing uh, may not uh, be the correct information. Uh, if there was a man in the middle, they could change what you see they can change what you send, and they can see what you send between these uh, sites. Um, so, so again, it's it's you know it's not the sort of the most uh, critical vulnerability in the world. Man in the middle attacks themselves are not the easiest things in the world to carry out, uh, but uh, it is again the just the security 101. I get a sense of from governments in general, just of maybe. Um uh, I don't know how to perfectly describe it. As a days ago, in terms of this, not I mean, there have been plenty of examples of cybersecurity problems around the world for quite a while. But I, I just get a sense of, well, we're Canada, and no one's going to pick on us, kind of a thing. Well, um, you know, we actually are are uh, getting a lot of that uh, kind of argument uh, being thrown around at the municipal election with all the online systems that were deployed. You know, well, it's not going to happen to us, and. You know, maybe they're right that, uh, you know, the state-level hackers aren't going to hack your election. But, uh, you know, there's other, other things that can happen as a consequence uh, beyond just a big state singling you out. Like, for example, what happened in Ontario with 51 cities declaring, you know, states of emergency because their, their election website goes down on voting night. It'll be interesting to follow. Uh, Alex, I uh, certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's Alexander Essex, a cybersecurity expert at Western University who specializes in democratic institutions. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. My thanks to Michael Van Holz, to Jesse Helmer, to Marcus Plowright, Dan McDonald, Peter Fregascados, Maureen Cassidy, Alex Essex, and Jason Leader for coming on the show. Thanks to Matthew McKinnis for his work on the program. Today's audio gem is from ITV News. Two anchors were wrapping up their newscast when one of them had an unfortunate turn of phrase. Have a great day. Mike will be back with you tomorrow at 1 o'clock. So that's it. We're on Snow Watch again. Oh, my kids will not be happy if we don't get a good dump. We will. I'm sure we will. Right, that's it from us. I'll be back with an update after the news at 10. Thanks for watching. <laughs> Bye-bye.